0: Then let's pray once again. Father, again, we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. He is the illuminator. He is the light. He is the effective power. And so we open ourselves now to the influence of the Spirit. We ask that our sails would be unfurled to receive the waft of the supernatural today, the gust of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, come now make this word come to life and make us come to life in the Lord Jesus we pray and now Lord may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight O Lord our rock and our redeemer in Christ's name Amen Cormac McCarthy is uh, one of the finest American storytellers alive today and uh, in one of his best known novels and, and uh, in the, the film that was made in response to the novel, No Country for Old Men, we have a Texan sheriff, and uh, this, this sheriff is mystified by the, by the enigma of suffering and evil in his county. He can't make sense of it, heads or tails. Pardon the pun for those who know the book. He feels outmatched. He feels outgunned. He feels outwitted. He's out of his depth in a sea of trouble that's drowning the people that he's supposed to take care of. And the sheriff, Ed Tom Bell, he blames himself. He feels that if he was just a bigger and a more menacing dog with a larger bark and a bigger bite, he could have kept the wrong people out of the yard of his county and protected all the people that he should be taking care of. He should, he thinks, be able to keep all of that suffering and all of that evil at bay. And in all of his guilt and in all of his perplexity towards the end of the novel, Sheriff Ed Tom Bell goes to speak uh, to his uncle, Uncle Ellis, to receive counsel from this elderly man. And this, this old uncle's like an aged prophet. He's a deep well of wisdom. And Ed Tom goes to him and he looks for an explanation. He looks for an answer to the enigma of suffering. But the only answer that he gets is the inevitability of all this pain. The inescapability of all this pain. Trying to flee and to run away from a life of suffering is a crippling and a debilitating pursuit, he says. And Uncle Ellis says this to him. He says, you wear out, Ed Tom. All the time you spend trying to get back what's being took from you, there's more going out the door. After a while, you just try to get a tourniquet on it. We don't know today what kind of questions fueled the response of Peter to these scattered believers in Asia Minor. But we do know that Peter's responding to something. Peter's responding to some urgent query from them. And he begins, therefore, his epistle in chapter 1 by describing to these believers uh, the the various grievous trials they're going through as if they've been tested by fire itself in chapter 1. And then in chapter two, he talks about the call to suffering on account of doing what's right, enduring sorrows for acting justly, which Peter describes as a gracious thing. And then in chapter three, once again, he retrieves this idea of suffering for the sake of righteousness, being slandered and being reviled for doing what's right for our good behavior in Christ. And then in chapter four, Peter insists that we arm our minds with the mentality of the cross, that we look to the cross as our model and we expect to suffer in our strife against sin, against the current of this sinful age. Our minds, Peter says, on a day to day basis, are to be thinking in terms of the cross. With the cross as our model, we need to strive against all sin that comes against us. And if you think about what the writer to the Hebrews says, it's the very same thing. Consider him, he says, who endured sinners and hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or grow faint-hearted. After all, you've not shed your own blood in your own fight against sinful desires. Therefore says the writer to Hebrews, keep fighting with the cross as your standard, as your model before you. And so then at the end of chapter 4 now, Peter again lets this idea of suffering surface again, namely suffering for the sake of righteousness. And he returns to the same heated vocabulary that he uses at the beginning. Don't be surprised. Just open your Bibles before you. Don't be surprised, verse 12, at the fiery trial... When it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised, he says. This is God's way. This is what God is doing. This is what God is about. The Lord is testing the church. And he repeats this if you look in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now is the time for the judgment or for the testing of God. This is what God is doing right now. He is testing you, church. Therefore, do not be surprised when the testing comes. Just this morning, uh, I received a text from a friend who lives in the States. And after years of marriage a woman, who, and after years of raising a small child together, this friend's wife decided that being married to a pastor wasn't the life that she wanted. Increasingly, she shrank and she recoiled from the exacting requirements of Christian discipleship. She pulled back from the demands of the gospel. She wanted a less demanding life. She wanted an easier path. In fact, she wanted another partner altogether. And so very recently, she moved in with another man and she sued for divorce, all in the name, astonishingly, of life before God, this is, she said, what God wants for me, because God wants me to be happy. And so my friend now is a divorced man, not able to minister as a pastor in his own denomination, has come face to face with the eviscerating, disemboweling pain of godlessness. He's faced nothing less than an attack on the way of the gospel. He's lost his wife, he's lost his job, and he sits in dust like Job, as if in the epicenter of a nuclear blast, when all that blinding, flashing heat has just melted everything. Unless we're a little too cute about what Peter's saying here today, he comes to people just like my friend. People who have tasted the very dregs of the bitter cup. How destructive, sinful, and godless antagonism can be towards the way of the gospel. And Peter says to these kinds of suffering ones today, beloved, you who are well-loved, don't be surprised at this. Do not be surprised at this. This is what God is doing. Don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you. Peter isn't talking here about the common grievances of life. He's not talking about the flu or the cold or uh, hangnails or cracked water pipes. Those things are grievous, as I know. Uh, They're grievous enough in their own right. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking all along throughout this whole epistle about suffering as a righteous person in the midst of standing out for what is good and right, enduring the direct attacks of the ungodly. Against us. Verse 16 if you look at it before you defines it very clearly. If anyone suffers how? If anyone suffers as a Christian. If in standing up for what is right before God you suffer. Don't be surprised said Peter. Don't be surprised. Now, on the one hand, we're not to be surprised because of the very environment in which we live. In Philippians 2, Paul talks about the world. Do you remember what Paul says about the world in which we live? You are burning and shining lights. You are bright shining lights in a world that is characterized as what? As a crooked and as a twisted generation. We are allied in this life to a God against whom the world has at large rebelled. They don't want God's laws. They don't want God's ways. They don't want God's rules. In fact, the rebellion is so pronounced that when the Lord came to dwell among him, they put him to death. They crucified the Lord of glory. Peter preaching on the great day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he says, Men of Israel, this Jesus whom you killed was put to death by the hands of lawless men. People who despise the government of God. This is the very heart of sin. We will not be governed by the Lord. We will not be governed by God. His word will not rule us. His ways will not constrain us. His judgments will not concern us. And this is why Peter cries out on that great day, save yourself from what? Save yourself, men of Israel, from this crooked generation. They aren't innocent. They are twisted and they're twisted and they are hardened and they are perverse, inasmuch as they've rejected the government of God. And so guess what? When God's people venture forth into this world and they consistently strive to live by what God has said, by the standard and the rule of God's word. What happens is that the lives of God's people witness to this very thing. As we walk about our day, our lives are giving testimony to this. God says. God says. God says. God says. And the old serpent twists and writhes in the ears of the ungodly, and his tongue forked, flickers in the ears and deep into their hearts with that archetypal lie, God did not say... God did not say, God did not say. And Satan has taught the world in his crooked and his twisted and in his serpentine way to despise the word of God, to despise all government of God. And when that government appears in God's people, the animosity of the world will bubble up. The animosity of the world will rise up all over again because they do not want to be ruled, nor do they want to be reminded that they are to be ruled. By the word of God. Brothers and sisters, the cry of the elect, the cry of the child of God is, Oh God, rule and govern me by thy word. Rule and govern me today. I get up in the morning and I cry, Oh Lord, I open this book, rule and govern me today by thy word. And when I go to bed at night, I get down on my face and I say, Oh God, rule and govern me by thy word. That is the cry of the child of God. Don't be surprised then, therefore, if your life is such an example. The animosity of the world will come against you. Don't be surprised, Peter says. Don't be surprised at this. Number one, because of the environment in which we live. But number two, don't be surprised because this is the way of God's testing. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you to test you god's way of testing the genuineness of our faith is by way of people who despise the government of god god's way of testing you is by way of people who despise the government of god now I'll be very frank with you today i wish there's a part of me there's a part of me that earnestly wishes that we didn't have a god who tests us There's a part of me who'd be just quite happy if God let me meander through life and stroll through life and give me the things that I need and protect me from the things that are going to hurt me and make me as happy as I can be. If that would be the kind of God that I serve, I'd be very, very happy. There's part of me which would delight in that. But it's not a good part. It's not a good part of me. Because the God that we serve is the God who tests us. He's the God who tries us. He's the God who examines us. And if we miss that, then we miss something very important about what God is doing in our lives. Now, the fiery trial that Peter is talking about here is not God attempting to discern whether we are weak or strong. It's not a test that's trying to discern if we are weak or strong, but it's God taking what is manifestly weak in me and placing it into the kiln of trouble. It's placing it somewhere where my feeble clay might be hardened to become a good soldier of the gospel of the Lord. I was, um, I was uh, in, in high school. Uh, I was in art class. And I made, for pottery class in art class, I made a fish. Everyone else was making all kinds of other things. I, I, I chose to make a fish uh, in that class. And it was a labor of love. I sculpted it with great care. It had uh, these big, big, round, bulbous eyes. It had these large, human, cartoon-like lips. It made everybody laugh when they looked at it. And I was terribly pleased with myself at this, uh, this, this clay fish that I had made. And I put it into the kiln with great expectation. I stuck it there on Friday afternoon, and I, I waited eagerly all, week, all weekend to behold what it would be in its perfected state. When my art teacher gave me my products back to me on Monday, it was anything except what I had thought it would be. He gave me this plate full of shards. It had gone into the kiln and it had exploded. It didn't pass the test. God isn't like me, He knows what He's doing when he puts us into this kiln of trouble in order to make us hard, in order to make us perfect. When he puts us into the fire, Peter says, it works for our glory, Peter tells us today. It makes us strong. God never fails in his testing of us. So therefore, Peter says, rejoice. This fire is for your rejoicing. This test is for your good. The fire is for your gladness. So then, when the twisted world hurts you, when the twisted world robs you, this is the testing of God. And though it hurts, though the pain gnaws deep, it can only result in our good, Peter says. But a God also tests the ungodly, you'll notice today. God also tests the ungodly. Peter quotes the proverb, and he asks the rhetorical question, If the righteous are scarcely saved... If the righteous are scarcely saved, not by reason of God's insufficiency, but on behalf of the great difficulties and pains with which we are are tested in this life. If the righteous are hardly saved, if it's hard for them to go through all of this testing, then what will become of the ungodly and what will become of the sinner? Those who obey the gospel are tested by God to the result of praise And honor and glory, we read. But those who disobey the gospel encounter a very different result. The clay will not come out okay, the product will not endure the fire. The Puritan writers were fond of quoting Isaiah 33 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? There is no doubt about the end of the man or the woman who despises the government of God the one who rejects the word of the Lord. It is the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. There is one word, there is one fearful word of the Lord towards all those who refuse his gospel in this life and it is away, away, away. Away from all light, away from all beauty, away from all warmth, away from all love, away from all bliss and glory and happiness. For you, the word is away. There is no hope. There is no hope in this life apart from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why would anyone choose everlasting burnings? And so it's hard for me on a day-to-day basis and on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis to know what's going on in the heart of anyone here. But if you are here today and you've not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ, if you have not surrendered to the government of God, then now is your opportunity to do so. I invite you to come to Jesus, to call upon his name, and to be saved by his grace. And to all today, I invite you to entrust your soul. As to a faithful creator. As Peter ends the passage today. The Lord has not only put you in these flames. But he has made them for your good. It is his test. It is his trial. And he does it for your glory. And the Lord today knows what he is doing in your life. Brothers and sisters, I'm not sure what it is that you're going through. We all endure opposition. Opposition of a sinful world in this life. It is the way that God tests us. It is the way that God shapes us and molds us. And I don't know what it is that you're going through, but the Lord has made it for you. He's designed it for your good. And blessed is the one who puts his trust in the Lord today. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.